Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Providence Medford Grand Rounds for November 2022. Today, we're pleased to have Dr. Jeremy Swindle, who's the Medical Director of Providence Newburgh Family Medicine. Dr. Swindle graduated from Tulane Medical School and did residency at uh, University of Missouri in Columbia, and he has a special interest in treating substance use disorders. Welcome, Dr. Swindle. Hi, everyone. So let's see. I really want to talk today about how primary care providers can treat substance use disorders. And my goals today um, first, I want to kind of instill in everybody the belief that primary care providers are the people who should be doing this work. And then second, um, I want you to understand what medications can be used to, um, to do this. And finally, specifically, how to use those medications. So hopefully when we're finished today, you'll feel comfortable um, going ahead with this work. So I guess the main question initially is like, why am I giving this presentation? Um, so I'm not an addiction psychiatrist. But I think that's the point. So I'm a primary care provider and I'm going to present this as what primary care providers can do to care for their own patients. So to kind of start us off, I want to talk about just the scope of um, substance use disorders in the in the US. Um, so initially think about diabetes. So all of us are comfortable treating our diabetic patients, and that's about 10% of the US population. Now, substance use disorders are actually more common than diabetes. Um, so if you think of your own patient population, you have more people with a substance use disorder in your panel than you have people with diabetes. And most of those patients have alcohol use disorder. Some have an illicit drug use disorder and some people have both. And as for Oregon, it's actually worse here than it is in the rest of the United States. So Oregon is second in the nation for prevalence of substance use disorders. And um, dead last in terms of access to care. So I guess the question is, if substance use disorders are so common, who's treating all these people? And how are they being treated? Now, I know for myself, when I came out of training, my thought was, well, if someone has, say, an opioid use disorder, then I should just send them to counseling, send them to rehab. And, um, and that was the only treatment that I knew to offer them. Um, so what if we did just do that? So a study from actually a long time ago about heroin um, showed that counseling by itself is uh, minimally effective. Um, so after sending someone to like a residential treatment program where they spend at least a month there, more than half will have relapsed within two weeks and almost all of them will have relapsed within a year. And patients who complete a program like that and then keep going to counseling for four straight years, at the end of that time period, only 6% of them will have been successful. Um, so what makes the treatment more effective than just plain counseling? And the answer is medicines. Um, if we go back into the same line of diabetes, um, if all we did with our diabetic patients is sent them for counseling um, about weight loss and exercise and their diet, that would help some of them, but the majority of them would, would fail. Um, and so we offer our diabetic patients medicines and we do the same thing with people with substance use disorders. And the goal of treating really any chronic medical condition is just to reduce harm. Um, 
with diabetes, we give people medicine so that 10 years from now, they're not dead. And that's more or less the same goal when we're treating substance use disorders. Um, so specifically with opioid use disorder, giving a patient a prescription for buprenorphine has an immediate 50% reduction in mortality. Whereas with a diabetic patient, you know, to see a 50% reduction in mortality, we're talking about 10, 15, 20 years of treatment. But just handing a patient a prescription for buprenorphine, you have immediately reduced their risk of death in half. <clears throat> and then um, with time, other things can happen besides just reducing the risk of death. The main goal with treating substance use disorders is to improve somebody's life. Um, so they can have a, a real job, good relationships, and just be in charge of their life. Um, so to kind of get into this, you know, why should we think of substance use disorders as a chronic disease? And a very similar question is, you know, why can't someone just stop using and be better? Why do they relapse? So to start this process, I want you to think of a patient who's entering a hospice program. Say it's someone with COPD and they have air hunger. Um, they will be prescribed morphine um, as well as Ativan, other medicines to help with what specifically, right? So air hunger is not necessarily physically painful, but it is really emotionally painful. Um, there's a huge emotional burden that comes from that. And there's a lot of anxiety about struggling to breathe. Um, and ultimately the goal of giving someone a prescription for morphine is that it reduces the burden that comes from that chronic disease, that anxiety basically. So it's really helpful to think of opiates not necessarily as pain medications. I want you to think of them more as anxiety medications. When, um, when we're in pain, a person can feel pain and sometimes they feel like, you know, I can handle that. It's not a big deal. And sometimes that pain feels overwhelming and disabling. So I want you to think of our baseline sensitivity to pain, um, whether or not pain feels disabling to us. If you give somebody an opiate, um, that decreases how sensitive they are to pain. So they can handle more pain without feeling overwhelmed by it. And in the same vein, they can handle basic everyday stress um, without being overwhelmed by it. Which sounds great, right? But we all know that with opiates, it's just a matter of time before tolerance develops. And with tolerance comes withdrawal and a rebound effect. So if opiates are able to reduce how sensitive we are to pain and reduce anxiety, if you take the medicine away um, and you get this rebound effect, we now have a patient with increased sensitivity to pain and increased sensitivity to withdrawal. So let's say you have a patient who's on chronic opiates and then you just stop those opiates. Um, they'll be sick for a, a week or whatever, um, but they will still not suddenly be better after a week. Their brain has become tolerant to opiates and with that tolerance comes this increased sensitivity. And this increased sensitivity, it takes months to go away, at least six months. So during those months, our patients who were on an opiate and then suddenly aren't, um, they are going to be, well, basically overwhelmed by everyday life events that cause stress and anxiety. Um, so those 
not just pain is going to feel more overwhelming and disabling to them, but also just everyday stress. And this is basically why people relapse, right? You can send someone to to detox and they get off the medicine for in a week and then they leave that program and they will almost immediately relapse because they're still in a state of very high anxiety and they feel overwhelmed by life. So eventually they will get back to normal, um, but it takes so much time that basically there are very few people who can successfully get to that point just by waiting. Um, so withdrawal is just so much more than just being sick and it lasts far longer than any residential treatment admission or, or anything like that. When a patient leaves a facility, they're still going to be unable to tolerate simple stressors and thus relapses just very common. So with your own patients, if something happens and you decide to do a rapid taper on their medicine, on, on their chronic opiate prescription, for example, they're gonna be left in a state where they more or less can't cope. Um, and that state is gonna last for months. Um, now, for someone who's using a chronic, someone who's using heroin or fentanyl, um, those are short acting medications. So they are gonna start the process of withdrawal several times every day. As the medicine starts to wear off, they're gonna start to feel a little bit sick, but mostly they're gonna start to feel anxious. Um, so four or five times a day, every day, they are getting some strong negative reinforcement. If I don't use, I'm gonna feel horrible. Um, and then every time they use again, they're gonna feel better. And that's a very strong positive reinforcement. So over years and years and years of this, withdrawing and then feeling better every single day, um, if you think of like Pavlov's dogs, right? You're giving really strong reinforcement, both positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement to this person that they cannot survive without an opiate. Um, and you'll find that most people who use opiates, they're using not to feel sick um, as their primary reason, not to feel anxious as well. And anytime they do feel anxious, even if, even if it is because, not because they're withdrawing, just because something stressful happens to them, they will associate that with withdrawal and they'll want to use. Um, so any type of stress or trauma becomes linked to withdrawal. So that can be pain, that can be anxiety, can just be life. Um, and over time, Opiates become a person's primary coping mechanism for stress. And if you take that away, they, they literally don't cope with stress. Um, so to try and make somebody better when they have an opioid use disorder, we have to get rid of the reinforcement that they've been receiving day after day, year after year. So specifically, how do you get rid of the negative reinforcement of withdrawal? Well, there's only one way, which is to take them out of withdrawal. Um, and we do that by prescribing an opiate. Um, so most specifically, buprenorphine. So why buprenorphine? Why don't we just prescribe them oxycodone? Um, and the answer is because buprenorphine has a very long half-life. Um, 36 hour half-life. So that means if it's taken every day, the level just reaches a steady state and never goes down. Um, so there is literally no withdrawal. Um, so that is literally the only way to immediately 
remove the negative reinforcement that they've been receiving and have a chance of therefore changing their behavior over time. So Suboxone, buprenorphine can come as a, as a, a daily dose, or it can be given as a, a shot that lasts an entire month. Um, and that the whole goal of that is create steady levels of opiate, opiates in the brain. Um, and then the second question would be, how to get rid of that positive reinforcement where every time I use, I feel awesome. Um, well, that's where buprenorphine comes into place as well. So buprenorphine is not a regular opiate. Um, with regular opiates, the more you take, the more benefit you get. Um, with buprenorphine, there is a, a ceiling to how much benefit it can give you. Um, so whether you take, you know, three films of buprenorphine or you take 20 of them, you get the same result. And buprenorphine also blocks other opiates from taking effect. So once a person is on buprenorphine and they use fentanyl or heroin, they don't get the positive reinforcement they normally would get from using. Buprenorphine blocks that result. Um, so with one medication, you can take care of all this reinforcement that they've been receiving for years and years and years. Um, and you can bring them into a stable condition where they have the ability to start to make change in their life. Um, so treating substance use disorders. Um, you know, all of us are probably comfortable treating tobacco use disorder. Um, it's a simple thing and we don't really think twice about it. Um, but you take that next step to something like alcohol use disorder and there's less of us who feel comfortable treating that. And when you take that next step to opioid use disorder, then almost none of us are likely comfortable treating our patients who have this problem. So if we think about treating tobacco use disorder, we've got two primary tools, well, three tools, but the ones I wanna talk about so nicotine is similar to giving somebody um, buprenorphine or methadone when they have an opioid use disorder. Um, you're just replacing nicotine with nicotine and then gradually reducing the dose. Um, Shantix um, is actually very similar to buprenorphine. It partially stimulates the nicotine receptors and it also blocks them so that when people smoke, they don't get the same benefit they normally would receive from the nicotine. Um, so our tools to treat opioid use disorder, there are three. Um, methadone is a pure agonist and that um, would be like giving somebody nicotine when they're, when they're smoking. Um, we're not gonna talk about methadone because none of us can legally prescribe that um, for opioid use disorder. That has to be done in a, in a methadone clinic. Um, but the two tools that we do have, buprenorphine, which is a partial agonist antagonist, just like Shantix. Um, and there's another medicine called naltrexone, which is a pure antagonist. And we'll talk about each of these. So buprenorphine in the brain, it fits into um, opioid receptors. These little green things up here are opioids. Um, and the little yellow things are buprenorphine. Buprenorphine kind of crowds in those receptors. It doesn't fit in perfectly like an opioid would, um, but it still fits in there enough to stimulate that receptor. Um, and it also sticks into that receptor with very high affinity. So much higher affinity than say, um, morphine or heroin or, or fentanyl. Um, so that when someone does use any of those drugs, they don't get into the receptor nearly as much as they would because buprenorphine has a stronger affinity and it's blocking those other um, drugs from entering the receptor. Um, okay, now I wanna kind of get into details about how you can treat 
um, alcohol use disorder and opioid use disorder. And I'll talk a little bit about methamphetamine use disorder as well. So with alcohol use disorder, um, we have one primary tool and then a couple other tools that are not as good. Um, so naltrexone, which is what I just mentioned in terms of opioid use disorder as a pure antagonist. Naltrexone blocks opioid receptors. Um, so it's a long lasting form of, of Narcan. Um, so why does that work for alcohol? Um, well, opioid receptors are involved in the final common pathway in terms of um, getting a dopamine burst from uh, using any substance. Um, so when someone is taking naltrexone, it blocks the opioid receptors in that final pathway, um, and it limits the euphoria that come from any drug. Um, so if you give this to someone with alcohol use disorder um, and they have a drink, they don't get the same benefit from it as they normally would. Um, and if somebody has a strong desire not to drink, then they take a drink anyway and it doesn't give them what they want, well, that removes some of the reinforcement of drinking and it makes it far easier for someone just to not drink anymore. Um, the other tools we have, acamprosate, um, which again kind of reduces the desire to drink, um, partially effective, and then drugs like Topamax and Baclofen and Gabapentin, they have a little bit as well. Um, but now Trexone is the primary tool to treat alcohol use disorder. Um, so like I said, it reduces the desire to drink, reduces euphoria after drinking, and the end result is that people are less likely to drink in the first place. And if they do drink, they're less likely to drink heavily. So I want you to think of naltrexone as a tool that reduces heavy drinking, not necessarily a tool that creates abstinence. But that's okay. If you think of what, what's our goal with treating any substance use disorder, it's to reduce harm. And if someone is just drinking less, well, then there's this less harm that's going to accumulate over time. Um, so if you just give somebody naltrexone, it results in about a 25% reduction in heavy drinking. Now, someone who's very highly motivated and comes to you after not drinking for an entire week, and then you give them naltrexone, that results in an 85% reduction in heavy drinking. So it can be a very effective tool for those who are highly motivated. Um, and since naltrexone um, affects that final common pathway with really any um, drug of abuse, it can be used for any drug of abuse. Um, so even with methamphetamine use disorder, if you give somebody naltrexone, um, that reduces their desire to use. Um, so there was a recent study where they gave people naltrexone as an injection, as a monthly injection, and then some Wellbutrin. Wellbutrin, you know, it's a, a mini amphetamine, more or less. Um, that helps people not to use. Doesn't help a lot. It gives about a 5% reduction um, in use, but that's better than nothing, which is, all we had to offer people before with methamphetamine use disorder. All right, so let's get into details. I want you to be able to, um, to know exactly how to do this. So starting with um, naltrexone, it comes as a pill or as a monthly injection. The pill only comes in one dose, 50 milligrams, and it's just prescribed one a day. Um, you can use more than that if somebody finds benefit from it, um, but is still drinking more than they want to. Um, studies show that if you double or triple that dose, it will actually be a little bit more effective. Um, the downside of oral naltrexone is that people can just decide not to take it. Um, they might say, this weekend I would like to go out drinking and I'd like to be able to enjoy the alcohol, so I'm just not going to take my naltrexone. And that makes it ineffective. Um, 
so the answer to that is um, deponaltrexone, which is called Vivitrol. Um, so it's a monthly injection. Um, and then once it's in there, you can't decide not to take it. Um, so that can be given once a month and it is more effective than oral naltrexone simply because you can't decide not to take it. Um, so Vivitrol, how do you obtain that for a patient? So in my clinic here in Newburgh, we just stock it here. Um, most insurances now don't require any kind of prior authorization. You can just give it to a patient. Um, alternatively, you can prescribe it, send a prescription to a specialty pharmacy, um, and then it will be mailed to your clinic, and then you can just um, inject that into the patient in clinic. So it can either be stocked or um, obtained specifically for each patient. And Providence's specialty pharmacy um, can provide this for you. All right, so issues with deponaltrexone. Um, first issue, it's a great big shot. Um, 4.2 milliliters of volume. Um, so the only place you can put that is deep in the buttock. Um, and it's painful, it's a big shot. Um, if you're giving it to someone for alcohol use disorder, well, you need to make absolutely certain they're not using an opiate because they will go into an instantaneous withdrawal from opiates from naltrexone because it is an opioid antagonist. And then naltrexone in general um, sometimes causes nausea. Um, this is usually just a few days after the injection. It usually goes away. Um, before giving someone an injection of deponaltrexone, always start with the tablet. Make sure that they tolerate that well before moving ahead to a shot. And as for like, how long do you treat someone with alcohol use disorder? Um, doesn't have to be forever. It can be. Most people after six to 12 months of treatment, their drinking is so much less that they feel confident stopping the naltrexone or at least switching it to an oral medication. But it can be continued chronically should they so desire. All right, now I wanted to get specifics about buprenorphine. So first of all, remember, this is a life-saving medication. Um, sorry, I always get choked up. Um, but, you know, instantly that 50% reduction in mortality. And then, you know, you're treating a very vulnerable population. Population that's been underserved and that feels, you know, marginalized by the medical community. So to prescribe this drug, you know, there's a law that was passed many years ago to say that the average primary care provider cannot treat opioid use disorder. Um, and that's the law that made it so methadone can only be prescribed in a methadone clinic. Um, as buprenorphine became available, it became clear that um, this was a safe tool that could be used by anybody. Um, and so the law was changed to say that any primary care provider can prescribe this, but they have to announce to the DEA that they're going to prescribe it. Um, and that's called a waiver. So you have to apply for this waiver and then the DEA, DEA will issue you an, an extra DEA number. So instead of it beginning with whatever letter it begins with right now, it will begin with an X. And so we call this an X waiver. Um, now in the past, um, in order to get this X waiver, you had to undergo eight hours of training if you're a physician or 24 hours of training if you're a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant. Um, 
the Biden administration issued a change to that rule to say that that training doesn't have to take place um, so long as you only treat up to 30 patients. And for the vast majority of us, that's all we're going to ever treat anyway. Um, my goal is that you feel comfortable treating your patients, patients who are already on your panel. Um, and 30 will be plenty for almost everybody. Um, so how do you get this done? So you just go to this website. Um, this is a government website. SAMHSA is the, I forget the acronym, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration, I think. Um, click on this link. It gives you all the instructions you need. You follow the instructions and you just say, I plan to do this. Um, I'm only going to treat 30 patients. And then um, it sends it to the DEA and you will get a new DEA number within a week or two. Um, so once you've got that, how do you prescribe? So Suboxone needs to be absorbed into the body sublingually. Um, it comes as tablets or it comes as little dissolvable films. Um, and you just put those under the tongue, leave them there for five minutes or so, and then you can either spit that, spit out the saliva or swallow it. Um, if these are just swallowed right away, you get about a 50% reduction in efficacy. Um, buprenorphine, and I will, I will probably just keep saying Suboxone instead of buprenorphine because that's what I'm used to saying. Um, suboxone is a combination of buprenorphine and naloxone, Narcan. Um, so a small amount of Narcan mixed with buprenorphine. Um, when it's absorbed sublingually, that Narcan is, is ineffective. Um, it doesn't really do anything. If someone were to take the Suboxone and dissolve it and inject it, the Narcan would um, put them into withdrawal. So it's meant to be an encouragement to take the medicine the way it's meant to be taken um, rather than injecting it. Um, so most pharmacies will carry buprenorphine as an eight milligram tablet or film mixed with two milligrams of naloxone. Um, it also comes as just plain buprenorphine and that's mainly used during pregnancy. Studies have not shown that naloxone causes any problems with pregnancy, but we still just prescribe plain buprenorphine um, when someone's pregnant. Plain buprenorphine can also be used as a way of treating chronic pain um, because it has a super long half-life. Um, it can be a really nice tool for patients who have both high anxiety and chronic pain. That group of patients for whom there is just never enough opiates and always a reason why they need more opiates. Um, buprenorphine is a great tool to help that. Um, so here's a prescription. Um, things that you need to know about this. Most common dose, two of these film every day. Because it has a 36 hour half-life, it only needs to be taken once a day. Um, and you need to put your, your DEA number um, on the prescription, your X number. So I just put that in the, I just add it to the, to the SIG. Um, all right. So I mentioned before that buprenorphine has a limit to its potency. Call this a ceiling effect. And that ceiling effect is about 24 milligrams of buprenorphine. So prescribing more than 24 milligrams is uh, ineffective. It doesn't do anything extra than 24 milligrams would do. So this is the most important thing to understand about buprenorphine. If someone is using heroin or um, fentanyl or whatever, um, the more you take, the more benefit you get. 
If you take a patient like that and you suddenly give them buprenorphine, even at its maximum dose, if they're using so much heroin that, they're, that the effect is higher than what buprenorphine can provide for them, then they will withdraw instantly. They'll withdraw from where they were with the heroin down to what Suboxone can give to them. Um, and it's not a gradual um, withdrawal, it's instantaneous and it's awful. Um, so you never give buprenorphine to somebody who has just finished using heroin. Um, the way that you get around this um, ceiling effect is that you have them wait 24 hours um, from their last use of heroin before they take the Suboxone. Um, the difficulty here is that it's hard to wait 24 hours without using heroin. Um, so I'll talk to you about what you can do to help people make it through those 24 hours. And then to make this real simple, after 24 hours without using, you give them 16 milligrams of Suboxone, which is two tablets or two film. And you tell them just to take the whole 16 milligrams all at once. Um, if you start with a smaller dose, that increases the risk of them having a precipitated withdrawal. Um, you can always reduce the dose later if, it feel, if they feel like this is too much medication. Almost nobody is going to feel like it's too much medication. Then the other really important thing to understand about buprenorphine is that it's almost impossible to kill somebody with this medicine. Um, because it is just a partial agonist, the risk of overdose is, is virtually non-existent. And for someone who is used to using any kind of opiate, you cannot harm them with this medicine. Um, so I said start with 16 milligrams of Suboxone, two films. Um, if they've been using more than a gram of heroin each day, you'd have to just ask them um, how much they're using. Then start with the maximum dose of Suboxone, which is 24 milligrams. If there's any question about how much they're using, just give them 24 milligrams. Because once again, you're not going to be able to cause them harm with this medicine so long as they wait 24 hours before they take it. Um, so how to get them to wait 24 hours? Um, you just sedate them. Um, now, people who are used to using heroin or fentanyl, they are really hard to sedate. So you can give them all sorts of medicines and they, they won't get tired. Um, so this is what I prescribe to people. Um, when they leave my office with a prescription for Suboxone. Um, I give them clonidine, gabapentin, anhydroxyzine, and Seroquel. Um, and I tell them that they can use the clonidine and the gabapentin and the hydroxyzine up to three times a day as needed. Um, I have them start with just one of those so they can try it out and see how it feels. And they can use all three together should they so desire. Um, People who are going through withdrawal have a very difficult time sleeping. Um, hydroxyzine might be sufficient to help them sleep, but if not, then you can give them quetiapine. Um, I send them home with a 200 milligram um, dose of, of quetiapine and tell them to cut it into quarters um, and start with 50 milligrams. So this is a whole lot of sedatives and it sounds kind of scary, but um, when someone is tolerant to an opiate and they're in withdrawal, they can take all of these things without any problem. Um, so I prescribe those medicines so that they can get 24 hours. Um, and after 24 hours, I tell them to take the buprenorphine. All right, so as a summary, how to prescribe buprenorphine? Give them a prescription, tell them to wait 24 hours, give them a bunch of sedatives, and then they're going to take two or three films of Suboxone once a day. And um, 
We're going to come back to see you in three to seven days. Um, now, when they come back to see you, they won't be in withdrawal, but if they were used to a level of heroin or fentanyl that was higher than the ceiling of buprenorphine, they're not going to feel awesome. Um, they're going to feel anxious. So expect that they may need to continue to use the gabapentin or the or any of those um, four sedatives that I prescribed. I find that it's pretty common that people will still want to use them for a few weeks after they make the transition to buprenorphine. And that's just fine. They will gradually use less and less of them over time. Um, so what about fentanyl? Um, fentanyl is, is different than heroin and it's actually more difficult to get someone who's using fentanyl onto Suboxone than it is to get someone who's using heroin onto Suboxone. And that's because fentanyl um, um, gets caught up in the adipose tissue of the body um, and it lasts in the, in the bloodstream much longer than heroin does. Um, so that means that 24 hours of waiting before starting fentanyl, before starting Suboxone, um, is often not enough. Um, so my goal, so fentanyl comes in these little blue tablets and patients may be using up to like 50 of them a day. Um, 50 of these tablets of fentanyl is, is so much fentanyl. <laughs> um, it's really impressive. Um, if somebody is using three to five tablets a day, I ask them to wait 48 hours and then I start 16 milligrams of Suboxone. If they're using more than five tablets a day, I ask them to wait 72 hours and then start the maximum dose of Suboxone. Um, so here's the issue though. Even with those sedatives I prescribe, most people just can't do it. They can't make it 48 or 72 hours. Um, and that's why a short detox stay can be a good option. So even if they're just seven days in a detox facility, they can come out of there already on Suboxone, and then it's pretty easy to maintain them on that after that point. I'm gonna give you one other alternative. Um, this is called microdosing. So a lot of information on this slide, but the whole idea here is that you can also ease into buprenorphine while continuing to use fentanyl. So they can just keep taking, using whatever amount of fentanyl they normally use. Um, and you can start with a minuscule dose of Suboxone. Um, so Suboxone comes in eight milligram films. It also comes in two milligram films. If you're gonna ease into it, you start with just a quarter of a two milligram film. And then over the course of a week, that dose is gradually increased to 12 milligrams. Um, once they reach a dose of 12 milligrams, you can then just jump from there all the way up to 24 milligrams um, without any difficulty, without any risk of a precipitated withdrawal. Um, so, you might feel weird having them telling them to keep using fentanyl while you're prescribing buprenorphine to them. But really, so long as they're taking that buprenorphine, their risk of overdose from fentanyl is actually minimal. Um, and then as this dose increases, the fentanyl is going to become less and less effective for them. The challenge for the patient is as the fentanyl becomes less and less effective, they're going to want to stop taking the buprenorphine and just take the fentanyl. Um, so this approach works for some people. Um, it doesn't work for all people. So sometimes you do have to use a detox stay as the, as the start off point for fentanyl. Um, now this microdosing regimen was actually developed for patients who are prescribed oxycodone for chronic pain who will needed to make the transition to buprenorphine. Um, 
So you can use this for not just fentanyl, you can use it for any opiate as a means of transitioning someone um, to buprenorphine. Um, so if, if that's the case, they would keep taking their oxycodone while they're on the buprenorphine. And once they reach up to 12 milligrams, you just taper them off of the oxycodone. All right, so summary, buprenorphine, you're gonna wait, this is for fentanyl. You wait 48 to 72 hours, again, with a lot of sedatives. Some people can do it, some people can't. But at the end of that, take two or three films of Suboxone, follow up in a week again, or you can try the microdosing regimen or a short detox day. Okay, so now you've got them on fentanyl. Um, now you've got them on buprenorphine, sorry. Or <clears throat> this would apply to you even if like say, some patients go to the ER, the ER might put them on buprenorphine and then they show up to you later. So what's next? So your initial goal is just to get them stabilized. And that means find a dose that works for them and then keep them on that dose for at least six months. That six months time period gives the brain time to rewire itself. Um, it gives the patient time to develop new coping mechanisms when they're under stress. Instead of thinking constantly of, I'm under stress, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use. Um, they can actually develop some healthy coping mechanisms. Um, and that six months helps to reverse all of that negative and positive reinforcement that they've been receiving for years. Um, so it doesn't matter what dose of that Suboxone that you're giving to them. Um, 24 milligrams, 16 milligrams, it doesn't matter. You just find the dose that works and you keep them there. Um, and during that six months, you're giving them a chance to start to build their life. Um, and then you should expect them to need anxiety medicines for several months. Um, opioids are anti-anxiety medicines. If you take them away, they're anxious. And a lot of people who have opioid use disorders, they have an underlying generalized anxiety disorder to begin with, and that's why they started using opiates in the first place. And then keep in mind this, that because they've withdrawn so many times over their life and because anxiety is part of that withdrawal, when they feel anxious, they are gonna think they're withdrawing. Um, so it's important to help them not feel anxious. So give them an SSRI, let them meet with behavioral health, um, let them have medicines like gabapentin or hydroxyzine or whatever, um, so that they have tools to use during this time and it will gradually get better. Um, and when they first start on Suboxone, these people are in a really fragile state. Um, so meet with them weekly for a while and then just gradually space those appointments out. Um, how to monitor treatment. Get drug screens. Now the purpose of a drug screen is not to fire your patient. So, you know, if they, if they're still using heroin or still using fentanyl, um, that just means that the treatment plan that you're using right then is not fully effective and you should reevaluate and see what you can do to make it more effective. Um, you should also get a drug screen that includes a urine buprenorphine. So, <clears throat> At least up here in Newburgh, this is a send out lab. It gets sent off um, to Salt Lake or someplace, and then it comes back in two or three days. But I use this to find out, are they actually taking their buprenorphine? Um, so it looks at the level of buprenorphine in their urine and also the metabolite. So if someone just takes a buprenorphine pill and throws it into the, their urine, it'll have buprenorphine in it, but it will not have the metabolite. Um, so this is how I know that I, they're actually safe. Um, so long as they're taking their buprenorphine, I'm happy because at least they're not gonna die. Um, and if they're still using other substances, well, I'm gonna modify my treatment plan to help them. Um, so once again, our treatment goals are just to reduce mortality initially, but also to help them become functional, to have a job, to have a life. 
And usually that means giving them 16 milligrams of buprenorphine for a long, long time. Um, so what do you do when they relapse? First thing is expect them to relapse. Um, again, I want you to think about a diabetic. Someone comes to you and they've had a good A1C for a while and all of a sudden they come back and it's 12. Well, that's kind of more or less a relapse for them. And we don't fire them when they do that. Instead, we just reevaluate, discuss lifestyle changes, get them back on their medicines, change their treatment plan, and we just keep trying. Same thing goes with opioid use disorder or any substance use disorder. It's a chronic disease. Almost everybody is going to relapse. Um, they need to feel comfortable coming back to you and not being ashamed if they do relapse so that you can just treat them. Um, so if the tools you're currently using are not working, what other tools can you offer? Um, residential treatment can be really helpful, especially if it's really long. Um, so a three-month treatment is a good way to just reset things and let a patient start over. Sublocade is injectable buprenorphine, a once-a-month injection. If someone is having difficulty taking their buprenorphine, um, well, this is a simple solution. You can give them this shot um, and then they don't have to make the decision every day about taking their medicine. And then the final thing you can offer somebody, you can send them to a methadone clinic. Um, If, if, if buprenorphine is just not the right tool for a patient, sometimes methadone is. Um, so you're going to have every kind of patient, most likely. So some of them are just going to get better when you give them buprenorphine, and their life is going to be normal. And some of them will keep using. And when that's the goal, at least you're keeping them alive. Um, Sublocade's a great option, like I said, if they are having difficulty. But most important thing is that you just keep treating them. Um, so about Sublocade, it's a, it comes in two doses, a big dose, a little dose. Both of those doses are actually above the effective ceiling for buprenorphine. Um, you start with two doses of the big dose because that just speeds up reaching a steady state of buprenorphine in the body. And then you reduce to 100 milligrams and they don't, uh, they can't tell the difference. Um, this is a subcutaneous shot. It's done around the umbilicus. Um, you want to infuse the area with lidocaine first um, because it hurts. Um, but after that, it's going to keep buprenorphine at a nice steady level. It's going to take away the ritual of taking a medicine every day. Sometimes just taking the buprenorphine every day makes them think about using, um, and it takes away the decision as well. The other nice thing about um, Sublocade is that it lasts forever. If someone gets um, four or five shots of this and then they don't come back, it will take six months for it to fade out of the body. Um, so it provides them a long period of protection from overdose, even if they don't follow up with treatment. Um, in order to get this medicine, um, it has one of these risk reduction programs, which takes about five minutes. And it just tells you that you should never give a sublocade shot directly to the patient and have them do it themselves, because if they inject it in a vein, that's dangerous. Um, and that's basically all you need to, all you get from the, the risk reduction program. So you just go to sublocade's website, takes five minutes and then you're able to um, prescribe this medicine. Um, again, it can be ordered directly from the manufacturer um, or from a specialty pharmacy. So in, in Newburgh, we just stock this medicine. Um, because it's a controlled substance, we have to keep it in a lockbox in the refrigerator. We have to keep a daily log like we used to with um, testosterone. Um, but I love having this tool in the clinic. It's you know, it's better than Suboxone um, because it just is that next step up. Um, 
but um, it's not for everyone and the clinic obviously would have to make a decision to stock it or go through the process of having it shipped. Um, but it's a great tool. All right, last thing before I go to questions is, you know, what if they use multiple substances? Um, so if someone is, has an alcohol use disorder and an opioid use disorder, well, you can't give them naltrexone um, if they're taking buprenorphine because that will put them into withdrawal. So you've got to use the less effective medicines like acamprosate for alcohol or wellbutrin to help with um, methamphetamine use disorder. Um, and instead, you want to focus hard on counseling, on getting coping skills, having them work hard with behavioral health. Um, and then the other thing is, if you can keep them alive with the buprenorphine, time will play a role as well. Most people with substance use disorders, it gets better as they age. Um, so just keeping them alive long enough can help them to reach a point where they can be able to stop these things on their own. All right, so last question, can buprenorphine be stopped? Um, sure. Um, you can be tapered off buprenorphine just like any other opiate. Um, there's greater risk involved. If someone relapses while they're not on buprenorphine, they have a risk of overdose. Um, if someone relapses while they are on buprenorphine, then they're not going to die. Um, however, some patients are going to want to be off of buprenorphine. So when that's the case, um, consider that after giving them at least six months for their brain to, to rewire re itself. Um, and, and I would just sit down with them and say, well, what do you feel when you're under stress? Do you still think about using? And if they do, I say, you're probably not ready to stop it yet. Um, but if they want to stop, you just reduce it a little bit each month. Um, this is the, the path that I take. Um, I'll have these slides available for you so you can look back on this. Um, just a small dose reduction every month or two um, usually actually isn't that challenging for patients and they can finally just stop and they can be perfectly fine without any medicine. Um, but yes, it involves greater risk than keeping them on the medicine. All right, Altern an alternative way to stop this medicine if they're on sublocade and you give them four or five shots and you just stop it, it'll fade away gradually over six months time and they will never withdraw. Um, so that's the easiest way by far to taper someone off of Suboxone. All right, my final thoughts. So hopefully this presentation has served to educate you, um, but also our staff needs to be educated. Um, so, our society in general thinks of substance use disorders as a, as a moral failure um, rather than a chronic disease. Um, being able to approach this with a non-judgmental attitude is essential. Um, most of these patients already feel a high level of shame and mistrust of the medical system. Um, so providing them with compassionate care is essential to their success. And this is especially true with communities of color. All right, last thing, just don't be afraid. Anything you do is safer than what they're already doing. All right, last thing. These are, sorry, I mean, they're your patients. Whew. Who better than you? All right, questions. Thank you, Dr. Swindle, for that excellent presentation. Um, let's see, one comment uh, that we have, residential treatment may not be covered by insurance, may not be approved for three months, may have long wait list <laughs> available at all. It's a challenge, so. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, so most people with, say, an opioid use disorder, by the time they come to you, their life is in shambles and they um, no longer have a private insurance and they usually are on the Oregon Health Plan. The Oregon Health Plan always covers um, both detox and 
a long residential stay. They cover a three-month residential stay for um, opioid use disorder. Well, that's good to know. Um, and uh, please type in questions if uh, if you have other questions. I have uh, a few. Um, cross coverage uh, with your colleagues in the clinic. I'm assuming you have other other providers who are X wavered in your clinic. Yeah, you know, for a long time I was the only one, but now I have um, there's six of us, um, so that does make it easier. If you're the only one, um, that's a challenge. Every time that I went on vacation, I'd have to look through my patients and um, just write a, a post-dated prescription um, for all of them. Um, yeah. Um, another comment. Uh, this was excellent and should be mandatory viewing. <laughs> so that's great feedback. Um, do you have requirements of of uh, keeping a registry or keeping track of these patients, or is there someone who helps you do that in the clinic? So you don't have to. Um, I I do because I. I want to know, um, so I work with my medical assistant in that regard. Um, but no, the DEA doesn't like required of you. Um, they they just want you to make a promise that you're not going to take care of more than 30 people at a time. Or if you want to prescribe to more, um, you do the eight hours of training um, and you can prescribe up to 100 people. Um, which is more than enough. Um, you can approach this from different directions. I mean, you can be a referral source or you can just say, I'm going to take care of my own patients. Um, there's a huge need. So word of mouth will be th that if someone can prescribe this, people will come to you. They, um, This is a severely underserved population. Um, so that's an option for you. And if you don't want that option, then um, at least you can provide the service to your own patients. Um, if you have opioid patients who just chronic pain patients who. Who struggle with taking their prescription as they ought to. This is a great solution for them. Yeah. Um, have you used the microdosing of the buprenorphine? very much and I'm curious about your experience with that. Yeah, I have used it. I find that um, works for some people and some people it's just as the dose goes up, they're just like, I don't like this. I'm going to stop it because um, mm -hmm. they can start to feel that the, the fentanyl isn't working as well. Um, I always try it. Um, I make sure that my patients know that I just want them to come back, even if they don't succeed, um, and we'll try a new tool. Um, a lot of them might not be ready to enter a detox program because a lot of them have already been there many times. Um, but if they just keep com coming back to see me, um, we keep talking about it. Eventually, we're going to find a tool that works. Um, so yes, it is successful sometimes, but it it's a challenge. It's just another tool you can offer to people if they're unable to do the primary tool, which is wait before taking the Suboxone. All right. I had an interesting um, patient visit the other day, a patient um, uh, with alcohol use um, said he is trying microdose psilocybin with a, hmm. some local practitioner. Um, I don't know if that works or not, but that's what I have no idea. <laughs> um, it may sell aside, but I have no idea. I haven't had any experience with that yet. Um, and any advice for clinics who don't have uh, behavioral health? Well, um, lots of studies have shown that it's okay not to use behavioral health. Um, I think it's important because I think it's essential that people develop new coping skills. And I think that's the primary function of behavioral health in this process. 
Um, in Newburgh, we use them heavily. Um, I have enough, we have enough patients as a clinic that um, we actually set aside a half day a week where we have two behavioral health providers who just sit up here with us. And we try to have most of our um, substance use disorder patients scheduled during that time, and then we can just bring them in with us. Um, and without that tool, yeah, I think it's harder. Um, there are many community people, this is common, this is a really common um, problem. So community um, psychologists and counselors, there's probably a few of them who do feel comfortable um, working with these patients. So if you can't have it in the clinic, that's sad, um, but there's still other options out there. All right. We'll give it a minute for any other questions. Yeah, I think we're at time too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't see any other questions coming in, but uh, boy, that was. Thank you very really much. Great. Thank it was you. Wonderful. You're welcome. Thanks for having me here. All right. Well, thank you everybody for joining today, and um, we'll see you next time.